0: In that man made
1: a jump of no. no. my
0: Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4 Z 102.1 FM, Brisbane's community radio station. My name is Andy, and I will be with you for the next hour. Um... As always, acknowledging we are on Aboriginal land here, um Jagger and Turable country in the city of Brisbane, as we know. Of, um, of course, the airwaves you're listening to uh, could be reaching further down. You can bear country on the Gold Coast, Quandamooka country, Redlands, uh, Cubby Cubby as you go north of Brisbane, or Waka Waka going out west. Um, and, of course, the internet, going everywhere to Aboriginal nations all across this country. There was over 500 of them, and still are, in fact, over 500 of them. Um, And, of course, it is uh, this week. It was the day of Survival Day or Invasion Day, as Aboriginal people would call the anniversary of um, the colonization of this country by England and Arthur Philip and the First Fleet back in 1788. 4 Z was there at the Invasion Day rally and March um, on Wednesday. I hope you managed to tune in. I hope that Leon uh, and Tabitha managed to keep all that uh, expensive recording equipment dry because it was a bit of a downpour. Um, I was there as well. And as people around the country were marching um, to uh, talk about a better way to think about what it means to live in this country on this land mass rather than the unthinking patriotism so often, uh, you know, that we're told to do by the dominant uh, voices in our country and, um, or we won't want something that's more reflective, more inclusive, and more honouring the traditions that go back more than 230 years, uh, uh, 40, 60,000 plus years of people living on this land. Now, one thing that it was the anniversary of um, this week was the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy being placed in Canberra in 1972. Um, there was a bunch of people down in Canberra as well this week trying um, to commemorate that and talk about what next for the movement of Aboriginal protest, which has contributed so much to this country and which the 10 Embassy has been such a focal part of, both back in 1972 when it started and for the last uh, 30 years or so years, uh, while it's been a permanent presence there on the lawns of Old Parliament House in Canberra, and so a big gathering there, um, and today on the show, we are going to play some recordings from that gathering. Uh, mostly, I'm going to play a speech by Michael Anderson, who was one of the four young men who started the aboriginal tent embassy in 1972 and he gives a very detailed account here in this speech and it's a great story it's you know a humorous story um it's a story about people just giving things a go and not knowing what might happen and things working out and also a story of solidarity of the people both aboriginal people working together and also some of the white supporters who helped to make that happen and um and everything that came from it, and uh, Michael tells it in great detail. I was trying to get onto him this week to have a chat to him myself about it, but he's been a busy man, so we'll play this speech, and of course uh, the embassy's history goes on a long time beyond those early days, but it is a great story and very inspiring and a great part of Australian history. So I'm going to uh, play that speech and let Michael tell the story.
1: 26th of January, in in Sydney, we were waiting for Billy McMahon to make his announcement about land rights and what was he going to do with Aboriginal people. We already knew the attitude of the people in Parliament down here, because a bloke by the name of Peter Nixon, who was the Minister for Interior, and another bloke by the name of Billy Wentworth, who was uh, Minister for Flora and Fauna, and Aborigines was included in that. And so they said down there that Aboriginal people, especially in the eastern states, and it's on the transcripts of the parliament, it's in the Hansard, that Aboriginal people in the east states who've got light-coloured skin and who've got a mixed blood should not think that we have any rights to land because we are no longer Aborigines. Billy Wentworth said in that parliament down there in 1965 that the Aborigines in the eastern states and the southern states should not think that we have the same rights as those people in the desert and in the Northern Territory and far north Queensland. They were the tribal people, we were the mixed bloods and we did not have the same rights. And so they tried to separate those rights in that parliament at that time. And so Billy McMahon comes up with a statement in 1972 on Australia Day that we are prepared to establish a policy to lease land back to Aborigines. Well, that went down like a bloody lead balloon, didn't it? And so we turned up, a handful of us, about eight of us, turned up in front of uh, Macquarie Street in Sydney, Parliament House. And uh, when we turned up there, it was pissing down rain, but then, you know, we didn't have a shower that morning, so it helped us. Um, I, I didn't anyway that morning, I, I remember that. Um, but anyway, we stood in front there and then there was a motor car pulled up and we were trying to think, uh, you know, there's spies over there because there's a white lady sitting there looking at us. And a black fella jumped out. And his name was Kevin Gilbert. And he was the only author at that time who was publishing political poems and political writings about Aboriginal people. And and so when we saw him, we were were quite quite impressed and, you know, we were excited by this. Because we now have a black writer who's a recognised writer to start maybe telling our story. Then we decided that, okay, well, Billy McBahn don't work here. He works in Canberra. And so we went back to um, a, a house that was owned by Norma Ingram and a bloke called Gary Williams, who was a Gumbanger man and Norma Ingram, a Wiradjuri woman. And so we went back to that house and there were 12 of us. And when we got back there, there was Paul Coe, Gary Foley, um, Isabel Coe, Norma Ingram, Gary Williams, um, Chicka Dixon, um, Nelda. Um, then there was uh, young Jenny Munro who would just come out of high school, um, was there with her sister, I think it's Mary. Um, and then there was myself, Tony Curry, and of course Bertie Williams was over at his girlfriend's place. Um, and Bertie, by the way, was supposed to be reporting to Melbourne because he's out on, on uh, bail and he was supposed to have uh, reporting rights in Melbourne. So, But I remember him coming to the Clifton Hotel and saying, if you blackfellas start making any moves and you want to do something. Come and get me. I'm with you. Um, so I always re- I, I remembered that. And so uh, when we got there, we said, Okay, Canberra's the place to go. And quite frankly, I make no apologies for saying this. There there was there was no um, body put their hands up. We said, Who's gonna go to Canberra? And out of that group, Paul Coe was there, by the way, and Gary Foley. And so we, we looked around at each other, and nobody put their hands up. And I put my hand up and I said, oh, well, I'll go, right? And then um, Gary, uh, Billy Craigie, because he's a brother Gomeroy man, he said, well, if he go, and I'm going with him. And so Tony Curry said, he'll, he'll go too. And no one else put their hand up in that house. So we are, uh, we are here on this 50th uh, day, on this 50th anniversary. And by the way, we did not Put that embassy up on the 26th of January. Let's get that very clear. We put that Aboriginal embassy up at quarter to one on the 27th of January. That's when we put that embassy up, and it was night time. And then the, we we were brought down here by a bloke called Nick Azad, who was the um, photographer and the editor of the Tribune, the communist magazine. And and Nick, when we went, Kevin Gilbert took us over there because he knew these guys. And so we went to the Communist Party headquarters in, um, in Goulburn Street in Sydney, and the, um, what do they call it, the Labour House yeah, there? Labor. Yeah, the Labour House. Uh, anyway, we, we went in there, and uh, these guys said, we only got $70 cash. We said, well, as long as it pays the petrol, because Nick's volunteered, And all Nick said was, I'll drive you guys, because we had no motor cars, I not and not a reliable one anyway. Yeah, that would get us to Canberra. And so Nick I said, I'll he saw an opportunity because he knew that history was going to be made. And so Nick Hazard said, I'll drive you guys down. And so we it, we got the money, $70, but that, at least that filled the tank up, right? And then we came down, we drove. We left Sydney at about nine o'clock at night and we drove drove down here. One of the interesting things, some of the conversations that we had um, coming down, because Oh, by the way, I, uh, I left out Bertie Williams there. I knew where Bertie was at Enmore. And so I said to Bertie, um, I said to the guys, I said, oh, we're going to get another brother. So we have to swell the ranks a little, you know. And so I went to Enmore and knocked on this door. And all, all Bertie, when he saw who it was, I said, we're going to Canberra, bro. He said, I'm with you. And, um, you know, that day I was known as the housebreaker the homebreaker, yeah because my brother walked out of that house on his girlfriend and he jumped in that car to come down here and take, and set this up and so when i hear people talking about how this thing happened i must say it pisses me off because that was a brother who knew what he was doing and so when we got when we got here we went to another um another communist party house over at Lyman. We had no tents we just came with the clothes we had on and the old white fella there be good he fed us and gave us feet and on the way down before we got there the conversation that nick uh, azard was having with us was what are you going to do when you get here and of course we just looked at each other and said um something yeah. uh, we had no plan truly we had no plan not a plan in the world we we're just coming to Canberra. yeah but we knew we had to confront that building down there. We knew that's where we wanted to be. And so anyway, Nick I said, oh, them, the Indians in India, they, they have a good program. They pour petrol on themselves and burn themselves. <laughs> well, that went down like a fucking lead balloon, didn't it? You know, That wasn't going to work with black folks. Yeah? Anyway, and then he said, why don't you do a Gandhi? Sit on the steps of Parliament House and go hungry. Starve on starvation diet. Billy Craigie, with his smart ass attitude, said, mate, we've been fucking hungry for a long time. (laughs) So, we don't have to go there. Anyway, so we sat and we said, well, we'll work something out. And uh, we're sitting at the house and the old man said, well, you guys got to really come up with something, you know, impressive, that's going to impress people. And uh, and the media will take notice there because you might only be there for 15 minutes after the police raid you. We said, well, we have to do something. And Tony Currie, sitting on the throne down the hall, right? And he was sitting on the house throne with the door open. And then all of a sudden, we heard this voice from down the corridor coming out and said, this is the home of the embassies. And so the name embassy came from a shit house at Lynham from a man called Tony Currie. And it stuck. That stuck. And so we, we, anyway, we had nothing to, we had nothing. We had no tents, we had nothing. And the old bloke said to us, he said, well, mate, it's pissing down rain out there. Um, I've got nothing I can give you. So what that old man did was he went out to his garage. He said, I just bought a brand new mattress, double bed. So we went out to the garage to see what we could get, you know, to cover us ourselves over. And um, the only thing we could find was a beach umbrella. Right, And I always thought it was brown and dark brown. When I looked at the pictures, it was fucking blue. So I got that all wrong. Yeah, that's one I got wrong. Yeah. But when we got, then, we, then we got the plastic. So we thought we'd have something to sit on that would stop us from getting wet. And then he had, he had about half a dozen hessian bags. So we thought, well, we got no blankets, so we'll cover ourselves up with these hessian bags. And then we raided his cupboard in his uh, office for some manila folders and some cardboard, and we made up some signs. And, you know, um, we had no wire either. And so I said, so we wrote the Aboriginal Embassy on it. I wrote Aboriginal Embassy on, on his manila folder. And as I was walking out, this is how ungrateful I was for that man offering all this here. I pinched the lace out of his shoe because I needed to hang something up on that umbrella. Right. I needed to put something up there because there's no wire so I took his lace out of his shoe uh, and then I kept the boys talking I said we need that there so the boys kept talking to him so anyway I, um, yeah, I, I didn't get to see him later to apologise for taking his laces but anyway um, so when we came down here he said why don't you wait till sunrise and put that up black fella thinking by the time we get down there at sunrise too many white people will be awake and there'll be policemen awake So there's only guards down there who were were security people in front of that parliament house. And so when we came down, we came down there and we put that beach umbrella up, we watched for the police to go past first, and we had to do a bit of reconnaissance. And so we watched the police cars go past, When the police cars went past, we were counting how often that cars come. And so then by by one o'clock, quarter to one or nearly one o'clock in the morning, we said, right, time, that policeman car gone. Let's put that up. So we got out and we drove the umbrella into the ground, put the plastic around us, squatted our black asses on that on that place, and we never moved. And um, so and there's some pictures of us four sitting there in the dark with it's a very dark dark behind us. There it is. There, look. That was that was taken with a flash, and that that's that was one o'clock, about one thirty, after we put that beach umbrella up. Yeah, and so. When we sat there, a couple of us fell asleep. You know, covering ourselves over and had a bit of sleep, so we had to keep someone up. And anyway, when we uh, next morning, just on sunrise, um, just after the sun came up, there's a wonderful picture of Commissioner, the Police Commissioner for the ACT Police. That Police Commissioner with someone from the Federal Police, I think, a senior official from the Federal Police, and some other deputy. They came there and they confronted us, and we were sitting on the ground like that, and I remember Commissioner Osborne, his name was, and he said he looked at us and he said, what are you guys doing? We said, this is a protest. Oh, how long are you going to be here? And Billy Craig, he had, this, he had the quick comeback, right? Billy looked up at him like that and he said, until we get land rights. And Commissioner Osborne said, that might be a long time. He said, we would be a long time then. <laughs> yeah. And so here we are, 50 years on, and we're still arguing and saying that native title is not land rights. Now, the other thing about that embassy, and, and what the public don't realise is when we set that up and we got there, you know, we had this media frenzy that came there. And one of the beauties of it was that we had not realised that the international press had had, had also come. And so when that international press came there and started talking to us, all of a sudden we're in other countries. People are looking at us from other countries. And we've never had that sort of publicity ever since the colonisation of this country. And so that embassy put us in the international arena, made people aware. That there was a problem in this country, and that Aboriginal people are fighting back. Yeah? and this is the way we fight back. Like you couldn't get a better scene to start a fight than sit right in their most powerful house in this country, and sit right on their bloody lawns. And then all of a sudden, we're told by the lawyers who come over to offer our assistance, offer us assistance if we needed it, that uh, about midday the next day, they came over and said, "By the way, that was very smart, guys." Okay. Thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah. But we didn't know what he was talking about. But what he was saying, his name was John Evans. He, was, he had his own legal firm here. And John Evans said to us, he said, you put that embassy demonstration up on a place where they cannot move you. There's no law in this country that allows them to remove you from where you put that embassy. And so that made us feel really good. You know, because, pardon the French, we fucked them at their own game. The other beautiful thing about that is the fact that we then knew that we were under our law on their country, right in front of that place, and we were not going to move. And within two weeks, we had tents everywhere. We had brothers and sisters who came from everywhere. The first three blokes who turned up at that place to support us four days later, mind you they stole a few cars to get here, right? Um, um, but they came, they came from Taree, Perfleet Mission, yeah, that's where they come from, three brothers. And, um, and the police came to us and said, you know, there are a number of stolen cars, do you know anything about it? And we well, said, mate, look, you know, motor cars get stolen all the time, what are you coming to us for? Yeah? But all those cars are coming to Canberra, yeah. so. Anyway, nothing happened, we ended up... uh, Then the brothers came from South Australia, they came from Western Australia, and they came and camped with us. And so we had a a magnificent embassy with a lot of tents that really emerged quite quickly. And by the way, we did not have a tent. We did not have a tent. We had a beach umbrella. And the next morning at about... I think it was about 9 o'clock. Yeah, it was about 9 o'clock. There were two women came there. With two tents, and then all of a sudden I realised that these women were from the Quakers, and not only did they bring the tents, but they bought breakfast for us as well, which was magnificent. firewood. Yeah. and the firewood. That's right, they bought the firewood as well, and so we. Um, there are a lot of people, like a lot of our brothers and sisters back in Sydney, we were moving in a direction where we, and Brisbane and Victoria, we we're all moving in one direction. No matter whether you went to Brisbane, or whether you went to Melbourne, or whether you were in Sydney, or whether you went to Adelaide, we were after the same thing, and we were fighting for the same thing, and the unity that we had back then was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary, powerful movement. And I, I must say this to you, that when that embassy was put up, it united our people right across this country. It gave them the power to fight, the will to fight, and no, we were not going to take a backward step. We had, when we after we put that up and the big and the mob was gathering. We had a caucus. We established a, um, a, a, um, a black power caucus, and that caucus consisted of Gary Williams, Gary Foley, Chica Dixon, myself, Billy Craigie, um, and uh, Kevin Gilbert. Now Kevin wasn't there then. No, he, he didn't come down. Um, and that essentially was the caucus. Um, and that caucus we used the media once a week. They'd come up from Sydney and we'd talk about what it is that we're doing. Um, from the second day, having that embassy there, we got invited to embassies, every foreign embassy that sits in this place here. We got invitations from every embassy. and. Billy and I never ate so wonderful in our life, quite frankly. Was, they laid on some good tucker when they talked to you, these fellows. you know. Not like these politicians here, cheap bars, give you sandwiches, you know. But we, had, we, we went to these embassies and all they were saying to us is, what do Aboriginal people want? We don't want to know your story because we already know about it. We want you to tell us what you want and how we may be able to help you. And you know to this day, 50 years on, we have not come together to put a plan in place to say how we want this to work and what we want. And part of that problem is simply because we are many nations, many languages, and we all have different priorities and we've got to respect that. And the Australian Government and their and their advisers are, are making wrong, wrong calls because you can't make create one, so, one shoe fits all blackfellas in this country. And so what we're doing is we're trying to ask the government respect the fact that we are different. And when we come together, we will come together in our time when we choose and we'll make those plans. We'll create that unity. And I hope that 2022 is a year that we can get back to that unity and we can walk together because we will not beat these bastards if if we're divided, we've got no chance. Now, so the other good thing about the embassy was that there was a man called Gough Whitlam who was in opposition at that time. Gough Whitlam paid us due respect. What that man did was he walked out of Parliament House and he came and sat on that lawn with us on the embassy and he talked with us there um, then we organized for the caucus to meet with Whitlam and his head honchos right and they came now that embassy if you ever look at that picture where uh, there's a picture of a blue tent now that blue tent is a is a two-man tent but that was the embassy and we went into confidential discussions inside that blue tent now if you ever, if any of you ever saw or stood next to Gough Whitlam at the opportunity this man was a giant, right? Not only that, he was smaller than the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, who became minister of first Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Gordon Bryant. And Gordon Bryant was a massive man. And mind you, uh, Jim, uh, old Lionel Murphy wasn't, wasn't small either. But there was Paul Coe, Gary Foley, Chica Dixon, myself and Gary Williams, how we did it, I got no bloody idea, While we sat in that tent, in that blue tent. There is a picture of us walking out of the tent with Gough Whitlam and Paul behind him and I'm on the side behind Paul walking out of that tent. What we discussed in that, in that tent was this. We want you to make land rights possible, where well, if you get in in October and become the Prime Minister of Australia, we want you to give us land rights. We also want you to make it possible for us to become self-determining, right? And we don't want to go under self-management, we want to go under a self-determination banner. Now from that day onwards, having had those discussions, one of the wonderful things was that he kept coming over there talking to us about how do we make put this into place, how do we make this happen? And so when he got to power, the first thing he said to us was, later in October, because I met him later on down here. The first thing he said to us was this, I can't give you land rights in the States, because the State jurisdiction has got nothing to do with the Commonwealth. He said, but we can commence the dialogue. And then he said, but I can give you land rights in the ACT, I can give you land rights in the Northern Territory. And so he focused on creating the Land Rights Act in the Northern Territory, and so he commenced that process to give land rights. He also turned the Office of Aboriginal Affairs into a Department uh, of Aboriginal Affairs. But, you know, one of the things that we were so excited about, we forgot to watch what he was doing, right? And so the person, what they did, how they staffed that Department of Aboriginal Affairs was that they closed down the administration of Papua New Guinea because Papua New Guinea was under Australian um, uh, what do you call it? Um, yeah, it was, uh, governance and, and uh, Australia was was the protectorate, basically of Papua New Guinea, and so they closed down that arrangement over Papua New Guinea, and Australia gave them independence. Gough Whitlam gave them their independence, and so they set up their own parliament and, and, and took total control. But when he brought all the white administrators back to Australia, he put them all over Australia in the office in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. And then we realised, hang on a minute, you're bringing people back, you new how of control natives on a foreign soil. And so you're bringing them back in here to control us. Very clever. Very clever. Given on one hand, taking on another. And you're going to hear about this tomorrow when we have a Professor Lilienthal who is going to talk about how white people and how governments in this country have tricked us and stolen everything just through words that
0: sounded bloody good. Yeah? From Michael Anderson, the story of the embassy being formed, and that was a speech that uh, Michael gave two days ago down in Canberra. He sort of he ends the story very shortly after um, the embassy was set up that night um, with just a beach umbrella because it was raining in Canberra. Um, just a beach umbrella and a few cardboard signs. Uh, But it did last a few months. It was in July eventually when the government passed a special bill to remove the embassy and there was uh, several uh, evictions of the embassy and a lot of people arrested coming to defend the embassy, but it was successfully removed in the end and... Um, remained just a sort of historical thing until 20 years later, I think roughly on the anniversary of the original one, a 20-year anniversary, where um, Isabel Coe, who was uh, the wife of Paul Coe, who had originally started the embassy, and a sister of Jenny Munro, who had... um, also been around at the time, she restarted it in the early 90s and they set it up this time permanently and they built a couple of little humpies there and eventually somebody very clever managed to apply to the United Nations to have the embassy registered as a heritage site, and it was, and so now the embassy can't be removed. And Isabel stayed there as the kind of uh, matriarch figure of the tent embassy for a long, long time, through the 2000s, um, until she got too ill to do it, and she did pass away a few years ago, um, and other people have filled that role. I was hoping to get a few different people from the different eras of the embassy to uh, chat about it, but it was a mission this week trying to get on to these people. A lot of them are quite busy and have been down in Canberra. But um, through the 90s and 2000s, it was, again, a focal point for Aboriginal protest, and there's all kinds of uh, great stories like the time Kevin Buzzacott reclaimed the kangaroo and emu off the roof of Parliament House, um, the coat of arms there, these huge... Um, I guess they were brass or something, uh, sculptures of kangaroo and emu, and took them saying, you've got no right You come and destroy this country and then show these emblems off, you've got no right to. And he uh, took them. Um, and so stories like that, I uh, of great protests. And I was lucky enough to be at the embassy 10 years ago for the 40th anniversary Um. And it was really brilliant there to see the different people sharing the stories and the, the effect that it had on Aboriginal protest um, in this country. And even 10 years ago, the, after this gathering, they then people went away and formed embassies in, in other nations, Aboriginal nations, other cities, including in Brisbane. It, some of our listeners might remember there was a tent embassy in Musgrave Park set up in 2012 in response to that anniversary Um and so that history is a living thing, you know. These things happened in the past, but their ripples uh, live on. And in all of, and so it's really useful to, to know this kind of history. And the history of Aboriginal protest in this country is inspiring and helpful, not just for Aboriginal people, but for all of us in uh, a tradition of taking action to try to make the world better, make the world a bit more fair. We can learn from some of these great uh, protest movements, like the Tent Embassy, like other ones in the 70s, like uh, the Wayfield Walk-Off, of course, which began in the 60s but culminated in 1975 with um, Gough Whitlam, who Michael Anderson mentioned there, giving land rights to gringy people. Um, There was also in Western Australia in the 70s, uh, Nunkanbar people protesting against uh, oil drilling in the Kimberley on their land. And, well, couldn't we have done with listening to some of those protests against fossil fuel companies back then? We might be in a bit of a better position now. But, um, yeah, there was some kind of sit-down blockade uh, actions done in Nookamba which, of course, became such a, a part of Australian protest and Australian environmental protest. Um and so these this history is really powerful in uh, for all of us to uncover a way of of making the world better and of of course, uh, for Aboriginal people the uh, the struggles continue and Aboriginal protest movements are still going strong all over the place, and so I encourage you to do what you can to act in solidarity with them um, and get along to advance and pitch in with some. Uh, money if you can, or with some on-the-ground support if you can, because that's how we will uh, make a better country, is not the decisions of um, governments and those who hold disproportionate influence in governments, it's ordinary people getting together Um, helping each other out in practical ways like the the Communists and Quakers did with the Tent Embassy back then, with giving resources, um, and working creatively to work out what kind of tactics can we use, what kind of things will get attention, will tell this story, will inspire others to act. And that's why the story of the Tent Embassy is really uh, powerful and inspiring because it's amazing just four people, Um, without an idea of what to do, but a knowledge we should do something and you never know what it leads to. So uh, that's about it for the paradigm shift for another week. But um, yeah, it's so important for all Australians. And I guess the, the history wars, as it's called, is so often talked about, about the settlement of this country. And Covering up the covering up the massacres of things in this country, and that was a a battle fought through the the nineties, I guess, and still going on in some ways today. This of how are we going to tell the history of this country and the stories that that formed it? Are we going to whitewash the unpleasant stories? Are we going to shut out the um, the people who aren't you know don't fit the mold of the the successful? the high profile people and um, people have been really, that's another fighting for how we tell the stories of our past is another um, tangent of activism, you know, another way that we can change the future. And so um, on a, a week where we're told to remember these events of uh you know, 1788, when convicts were chucked in a boat and transported across the world against their will and then dumped on a, another continent and then managed to make an amazing uh, country out of it with an amazing history. And we shouldn't uh, deny that. There's actually great thing, lots of great things about Australian history. But also, let's um, tell us a history that benefits all of us in this country and that um, is the going to help us to make a better future. See you next week.